Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Give Your Mother a Century Bond edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. There has been a lot of it this week. I'm Felix Salmon. I am joined, as ever, by Anna Shemansky. Hello. Hello, and guess who's back? The one and only Emily Peck of Huffington Post. Hello. Um, Emily is going to talk to us about motherhood because it's mother's day this weekend and so we're going to celebrate the wonderful economic aspect or maybe we're going to bemoan the e- economic aspect something like that it's going to we're going to have some motherish discussions we are obviously going to talk about the michael cohen revelations and who are these companies who are paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars and what are they paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars for we need to ask these questions, but by popular demand, and I genuinely mean this, like I have never had a segment so oft requested on Twitter as this one. Yes, we are going to talk about Argentina. It's happening. <laughs> there is gonna be a, there's gonna be a segment about Argentina. This is late money, we have to talk about Argentina. Emily's looking a bit puzzled. I'm just wondering who these these Twitter people are talking about Argentina. Oh, they all exist. Week. I, I pulled the, my coworkers at work. I said, did you know there's things going on in Argentina, financial things? And they were like, in 2001? And I said, no, <laughs> now. So a lot of people are going to get educated. Argentina Twitter is a thing. But yes, Fair. if you don't know what's going on in Argentina, if you don't know what financial things are going on in Argentina, then hang out here listening to Sleep Money and you will learn. But Emily, yes. let's Hello. start with Mother's Day because... Um, First thing you need to do if you're listening to this on Saturday morning and you have a mom is run out and get some flowers or something because tomorrow is Mother's Day. Correct. You are right. Your calendaring is on pace 100%. Uh, So I'm here to bemoan Mother's Day because in the United States we really, for lack of a better word, we screw over mothers and fathers too and children. Everybody is screwed. Um, Can I say screwed? You can say screwed. Okay. Um, you can even say fucks if you want. All right. I'll, I'll keep that in my back pocket for later. 
so yeah, so mothers, uh, women who have birth in the United States do not get any maternity leave. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't do have a policy on paid leave. Um, and I think we're only one of three total worldwide no paid leave. And um, it's a shame and it caused a lot of economic problems for the country. Now, are there states which have it or is it just nowhere in America? States do have it. And there's like a growing um, momentum behind the states doing it. So New York State just did it. We now have maternity leave here. California's had it for like a decade. New Jersey, um, and I think one or two other places. And it's not expensive, despite what people will say. It's a little you're all if you have I, I pay for it out of my paycheck. It's like a little tax. That's it. And a few dollars. When people talk about the costs of paid leave or the cost of maternity leave, what they often don't talk about is what many economists talk about, which is that if we really want to increase GDP, one of the best ways to do that is to increase the labor force participation of women. Exactly. And if you look um, at the data and where the U.S. falls, if you look at a list of um, percentage of women in the workforce and you look where the U.S. is, it's surprisingly low. And the reason really is one of the reasons is really because of this. All the countries ahead of us, they all do it. Um, Because if you don't have paid leave, a lot of women wind up dropping out of the workforce or they go to part time or some wind up, you know, taking government benefits. They slip into poverty, you know, depending where you are on the income scale. It is interesting, though, because one of the um, countries that people often bring up is Japan, because Japan has actually improved so that they now have a higher labor force participation Mm -hmm. of women than Mm -hmm. in the U.S. However, if you dig into those numbers, you find that actually that's because they have a lot of part time and temporary work. Mm-hmm. So although we do have impressive numbers in some countries, you still have to look a little deeper. Yeah, I'm not saying it's uh, going to solve all the problems, but I mean, it's it's economic problems. And I mean, it sounds trite, but consider the children. I mean, <laughs> lower income women, I wrote about a study a few years ago, uh, 25% of lower income women, I believe, are back at work within two weeks of giving birth. And that's like, that's not good for the kids or the mother. Um it's just it's kind of shocking, I think. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of consequences and it's not a perfect solution for labor force participation or GDP or anything like that. But uh, it's it's a big solution. Oh, no, it's it's certainly yeah. something that we should be moving toward because yes. I think the U.S. is such an outlier. So we're not saying we necessarily have to become Sweden. I know many people would like us to become Sweden, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily have to go that far. But we could go a little bit farther. And shockingly, I mean, to me, at least, there is bipartisan support for this. Like Pew did a survey, I think, last year, 80 percent of Americans actually want paid leave. Even some Republicans support. Even Ivanka Trump. Even Ivanka Trump. Even Paul Ryan. (laughs) Paul Ryan is in favor of it? Yes, but um, his plan, which they kind of floated, this conservative women's group floated this plan where they would take money out of Social Security. Americans could... They call it borrowing from Social Security Uh-oh. to pay for leave. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible plan. I don't think it's going anywhere. But I mean, we could borrow from his it. tax cut to pay for leave. That's not a bad. So idea. tell me about the sort of politics of this because it's not obvious to me why America would be such an outlier on this. I mean, I think there's this sort of American notion of like you have to. Go it alone. Pay for yourself. It's your choice to have a child, so you should pay for it. There's also a notion that, like, women – I mean, behind it all, I think there's still a notion that women sh- shouldn't work. They should stay home. And I think that's actually honestly. important because, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the 70s there was a real movement towards this. But then there was an uproar that this was going to destroy the family, that if you had, like, 
daycare that was paid for or things like paid leave that this was going to undermine the quote unquote traditional family. Right. But what's happened instead is women are going to the workforce anyway because they have to because wages aren't aren't really going anywhere and everyone has to work. Forty percent, I think, of um, anyway, a lot of women are breadwinners. Right. Um, And uh, yeah. So and and they're struggling now to figure it all out without any of these um, benefits. And it's actually undermining the family in a sense. And we're also seeing this is another area of real inequality where you have certain companies like Google that I think offer like five months of mm-hmm. paid leave. Yes. But then you have women who work at low income jobs who, as you said, get essentially nothing. Yes, that's right. It's um, And in recent years, it's sort of been like a maternity leave, a parental leave, actually arms race between like Facebook, Google, Netflix, that it's doing 12 months. Um, I always wonder, though, how many people are actually taking that? (laughs) I mean, Netflix is famous for having the unlimited vacation policy, which, you know, again, is one of those things which sounds great for about five minutes until you realize that it doesn't increase the amount of vacation that people take. If anything, it decreases mm -hmm. it. Yeah, people take less because they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. You work all the time here, I think, you know, minimum vacation policies are much better than... Um, like unlimited vacation policy. Yeah, I think there are some companies will sort of force you to take your vacation. Well, if you work on Wall Street, I mean, especially if you work on a trading desk, then then they are really, really into it because, you, you know, you can't hide a secret bank account um, when you're on holiday. <laughs> so they make, so that's one of the reasons it's an anti-fraud mechanism on Wall Street to, to force people to take vacation for at least two weeks a year. Not at all firms. <laughs> Probably bigger banks, yeah. Well, I promise not to steal or create create any bad bank accounts or anything for vacation I'll do whatever <laughs> whatever HuffPost needs but no I mean this is you know a lot of a lot of uh, funny business actually does get discovered when when people go on vaca- vacation mm-hmm. and like and this is a one of many extremely good reasons why everyone should be forced to take a couple of weeks of vacation every every year I wonder if Michael Cohen took a lot of vacation <laughs> recently <laughs> is that our segue <laughs> <laughs> like oh I was just having a lovely vacation in Belarus <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, my um, sister lives in New Zealand, which I think is one of the more enlightened countries uh, when it comes to parental leave. And it was wonderful. I, I remember she was pregnant and we were talking about who was going to take what leave. And you get she gets a certain amount of automatic leave. And then there's a whole bunch of kind of allocatable leave, which you can just sort of divvy up between the two parents mm-hmm. so that... Um, whoever is better at child rearing or has more ability to take time off from their job or whatever can do that and then the other one can go back to work and it's just super flexible and it gave them exactly what they needed when you know that's what's so sad about it's so sad about in the u.s we're so behind all these other countries are doing these really innovative things i think it's sweden that has this whole method to get uh, fathers to take leave also like you get an allotment and it sort of forces the dads to take the leave so there's more sort of gender equality more broadly and like here we are in the u.s with zip nothing nada everyone's fucked Uh, i said it and and again this is like you know it's, it's all well and good that Mark Zuckerberg is taking six weeks paternity leave or something, but it doesn't trickle down. Men do not take paternity leave. And actually, a lot of firms, even if they offer paternity leave, the men are really stigmatized if they take it. So, men out there, take your paternity leave if it's offered. It is good for women if you do that, and it's good for everyone, not to mention your own sort of mental health and bonding with your kid and all the rest of it and giving your whoever 
gave birth to your child, a little bit of a break when they need it most. Um, and feds, like it's about time to step up, step up, right? Yeah, step Congress. up. Everyone wants it. It's Everyone popular. Wants it. This is yeah. this is this is a way to make politicians popular, and God knows they need that. They really could use a boost. These guys, they're screwing it up. So happy Mother's <laughs> Day, all mothers out there. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, and let's talk about Michael Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> you know who else has a mother? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wonder what Michael Cohen's mother thinks of Michael Cohen. I feel she's proud of him. He grew up in the Five Towns, which is near where I grew up, and I feel like I, I understand him a little. Yeah, oh, okay. So, so <laughs> Emily Peck has come on Slate Money to explain... The whole Long Island thing. Uh, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, before you get into the substance of this, can you explain the jacket? Which jacket? The plaid one? Yeah. I mean, I think he likes to look snazzy and sharp. I, I don't have a good sartorial explanation. Is it a snazzy and sharp jacket? <laughs> it's um, it's striking. You're talking about his outfit now and not his potential crimes. Um, Distracting, we should say. Okay, Emily, what are <laughs> Michael Cohen's potential crimes? Well, um, the news broke this week via Stormy Daniels' attorney, Michael Avenatti, which is a strange thing to say, um, that right, I think right before the election, through the beginning of this year, um, companies, including one um, with a Russian oligarch behind it. Columbus Nova. Thank you. Who, who you, media geeks might remember as the company which put some last minute $50 million into Gorka Media to keep it alive during the um, Hulk Hogan case. Fascinating. Um, and the other the other companies, Novartis, giant Swiss pharmaceutical company, AT&T, storied American company, and um, I think a Korean, Korean aerospace, aerospace company. company. Yeah. And so basically it seems that what happened is that when Michael Cohen, when Donald Trump became president, Michael Cohen started going around every company he could think of and saying, guys, Donald Trump is a loyal guy who only works on the basis of personal relationships. And I have a stronger personal relationship than anyone in anyone else in the world. And so if you want to understand him and get to him, pay me $100,000 a month, and you will be very well placed to something, something, something. And most of the time, one has to assume, this pitch kind of fell on deaf ears and, and the companies rolled their eyes and said, who is this guy from Long Island? But evidently, he managed to find at least one person at Novartis and at least one person at AT&T who thought, that sounds like a good idea. My, uh, my favorite part of the Novartis story was that it appears that they had one meeting with him and were like, this guy's an idiot. Yep. But they had signed this contract and I'm like... You, you should have vetted that a little bit more. I mean, I mean that was the thing. One point two million dollars, which I guess is yeah. nothing to them. Well, but. I mean, it's. I mean, I feel like it's something even to Novartis, but more to the point. You obviously have to meet with him when he's trying to pitch you on this consulting deal, right? Mm -hmm. They've actually had meetings with him 
which where he was so impressive that they said, yeah, you're worth $1.2 million to us. And it's what I don't understand is how can he be that impressive to be worth $1.2 million in one meeting? And then in the next meeting, once the contract is signed, he just kind of drools on his tie or something. And they're like, you are completely useless. And then they never meet him again. I feel like part of it maybe was like a Trump delusion syndrome. Like no one expected this guy to win. And people are just like scrambling, even these companies just scrambling to understand what's going on. And he comes across, let's just be honest, as kind of an oaf. So, of course, his guy comes across as an oaf. But you're sort of still hoping deep down inside that he'll have an insight, so you pay the money? I don't know. Yeah, I think there are some leadership changes, too. So, <laughs> yeah. that so yeah. there, there, there are two two things going on here, um, especially with the Columbus Nova slash Victor Vexelberg half a million dollars. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think, and of course no one knows for sure, but if you had to put them on the lie detector stand or something and say like did you honestly think that you were just paying michael cohen or did or was you you were you effectively trying to use michael cohen as a way of paying donald trump you know this is he has established himself as a financial conduit between donald trump and stormy daniels like we know that already like this is what michael cohen does is he's trump's financial conduit in real estate deals around the world so if someone wires him half a million dollars there's a good chance that they think they're wiring that money to the president rather than just to michael cohen right i don't know i mean isn't it uh it's not unusual for people who claim to really have an in with a politician to sort of set up shop and put their hands out and and you know that's lobbying that's that's the swamp he didn't Register as a lobbyist. Yeah, that's well, that's the thing. He sort of ham handedly did this, which makes it all look very shady. Rhymes with tribe, kind of. And yeah, I mean, it, although it is definitely true that when you have people who have ties to politicians, they can make a lot of money in consulting fees. Yeah. I, to me, I don't think this reads as like a bribe, if only because the money just isn't very much. No, it one hundred percent reads this as a bribe and i think i mean we actually on slate we had a really good piece about that where these payments especially the novartis and at&t payments if they had happened in any other country other than the u.s would have totally fallen under the foreign corrupt practices act and the lawyers would have been all over it and they would probably have been illegal i mean 100 percent these readers are bribe. what what were they if not bribes I think their standard operating procedure in politics stripped away of the veneer of regulations and the standard practices. Like a normal Michael Cohen type would have set up, as he did, he kind of tried to do this, but he didn't go through with it. He would have set up shop in a law firm and he would have registered as a lobbyist and he would have done the same thing, but it would have been fine because that's the way one does it. But he didn't do it the way one does it. He did it in this like, honestly, kind of dumb way, it seems like. Right? Really? You don't think he's very smart? I mean, I don't know. Not to denigrate Long Island. He's he's not one of our best people. <laughs> hey, I feel like between Michael Cohen and Anthony Scaramucci, like <laughs> Long Island is not really making a great name for itself. So I'm not saying these are <laughs> super sketchy. But all I'm saying is that, to me, if you're talking about relatively small amounts of money. Just $1.2 million. That's not a lot of money. And if you're talking about... <laughs> We're a very large company. I'm sorry. That's not a lot of money. That is the amount of money you may expect to spend on consulting fees to get a better 
to get more insight into a new administration. Now, because he's the personal lawyer who still has connections to the president, that does seem really sketchy. But especially when you're talking about something like AT&T, when people are saying like, oh, well, maybe this is tied to the AT&T merger. I'm like, of course it was. You really think that it's going to be like, okay, we have an $85 billion merger in front of us. We have some two-bit hustler who pays off porn stars who just got a $600,000 payment. Clearly, that's going to tip the scales. No, but I mean, it's not coincidence, surely, that they stopped paying him the the minute that the DOJ made its decision on their $85 billion merger. They wanted... They were pulling out all the stops and they were using all of the regular lawyers. And then they were like, hell, I'll use the irregular lawyers as well. And I'll try the backdoor bribery thing just in case the front door going through the, through the front well, door doesn't work. Yeah, they'll let's, try whatever whatever could work. They'll give it a shot. But, no, 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 let's think about this first. That they were, I mean, they, they have said, like, yeah, we just wanted, you know. They said they wanted insight into what the administration was thinking. Okay, because let's think about this for a second. You have, what? what is the potential fallout? If people find out that you were bribing someone, well, now we're about enormous. to find out. Enormous, yes. So you are going to take that risk and yet pay someone six hundred thousand dollars, and you like the risk reward makes absolutely okay, no well, sense. Okay, well now now it's come out. What has the damage been to AT and T? So far, none. Right, I'm waiting for an investigation. Something. I think a few senators called for an investigation, but I haven't seen anything else. Have you? It's also been two days. Like <laughs> I'm just saying. So wait. So you, wait. So what you're saying is that now that it has come out, AT and T is going to suffer something significant at some point in the near future. That's your prediction. Potentially. And my point is just that if AT&T was actually engaging in something akin to bribery, it seems like in order to take on that risk, they would really have to think that what they were doing was going to make a big impact. And what they actually did just doesn't seem like it would have any impact. So, okay, so let me just ask you something as, as a, you know, old emerging markets hand. If AT&T had paid the personal lawyer to the president of Ecuador $600,000. And then, you know, to get quote-unquote insight into the administration, and then this comes out, is there any way they don't face a massive FCPA trial for that? It depends. I I, I think it is, I'm, again, I am not arguing that this isn't sketchy and rings a lot of alarm bells. I think to me it was just that the amounts of money just seem fairly small. That, that, that's why it just... Well, the, I mean, Michael Cohen is a fairly small-time crook. Right. Taxi so you're, medallions. That's what I'm yeah. saying. So you're you're just, you're taking on so much risk with someone who can't really give you that much. Why would you do that? Well, why would they do that? I think um, someone pointed out, I think it was on another Slate podcast, actually, that um, finding someone guilty of bribery is actually really hard these days. Like, there was a Supreme Court case a few years ago, or maybe yeah, last it's year. Been, like, in the U.S., like, as I was saying, like, Overseas, it's quite easy, mm-hmm. but in the U.S., it's really hard. So there you go. AT&T probably, there is not, isn't much risk. They don't have legal risk, but they certainly seem to have reputational yeah. risk. People aren't really loving AT&T right now. Yeah, but who's going to change their if they're using AT&T for their cell phones? Such a pain to no, change. No, no, I, the, that kind of, no, that kind of risk, they're, they're okay <laughs> in. But like, is it possible that somewhere in the DOJ there's someone who cares about these things and might look less favorably on them seeking to buy Time Warner? Possibly. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. 
and I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, by popular demand, and and I, I genuinely mean this, um, Anna is going to give us <laughs> the the Argentina story. Argentina is back in the news, people, yep. and it has nothing to do with bond defaults or pres- or any <laughs> any president named Kirchner. <laughs> Um, but it does. But it does yet again have to do with the IMF because you can never have an, an, an Argentina scandal without the IMF being involved somehow. Okay, what's the story? Okay, so right now Argentina has what I'd like to call a situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to call it a crisis because I feel like in Argentina you need to be at least like 800, 900 percent inflation. You know, like 500 percent rates before I'm really calling it a crisis. My my favorite Argentine data point, and I think I might have mentioned this on a previous show, was I, I went to interview the finance minister once, and he showed me this chart. Um, showing that like the crisis was over, and the chart was the number of demonstrations per day around the country, <laughs> and it was going down and to the right. And he's like, "Look, the Impressive. number of demonstrations is going down. This is a, this is a a number which is measured." And I feel like the number of demonstrations per day in Argentina is still not high enough to to count as being a crisis. Yes. So last week people in the U.S. started to pay more attention to this because everybody heard that Argentina raised their key interest rate to 40%. Which is... Baffling to me. Is that... I it's mean, it's like, no. what? But for, the first thing you need to realize is, is they that, do this after they announce that inflation is 25%. Yes. So if if the interest rate was anything under 25%, it would actually be negative in real terms. Right. So... And honestly, they should have raised the rates faster. We'll get to that. But so, okay, why is Argentina doing this? What is this crisis about? To understand this, you have to understand that you have both external and internal factors. So the external environment is we have a global environment where we have increased Fed rates in the U.S., which is causing us to also have a stronger dollar. And that is traditionally bad for a lot of EM countries. Why? Because their currencies are going to decrease in value. Their imports are going to be more expensive. That is going to make inflation get higher. That's going to make them have to raise rates, which is going to slow down their economy. That's part of it. Also, it's going to make their investments, it's going to make it harder for them to service their debt that's denominated in dollars. And on top of that, if you have higher yields in the U.S., it's going to make the assets in emerging markets less attractive. So... Argentina, so the Argentine peso is weakening. It's hit yet another all-time low. Um, And this is something they don't want because oftentimes when you go around emerging market countries, they're like, they want a weaker currency because it means they get to export more. You want a weaker relative to your neighbors, (laughs) which is, yeah, so correct. Now, if you're looking at EM countries that are the most vulnerable to this shifting environment, Argentina is one of them. Why? Because they have twin deficits. They have a current account deficit and they have a fiscal deficit, which means they're heavily reliant on foreign money to fund their economy. Right. So they, they the government needs to borrow lots of money every year from abroad. And also Argentine companies need to get foreign investment, whether it's debt or equity, to because because of this thing called the 
current account deficit. And so all of this money needs to flow into Argentina in an environment when everyone's kind of scratching their head and going, why do I want to invest in Argentina right now? Right. So my last my last external effect, and then I'll go to internal. <laughs> so what you just said about investors thinking, why am I investing here? If we look at 2017, Argentina was a market darling. The MSCI Argentina index was up like 77%. Money was flooding into this country. So if you're an investor and you're thinking, I've made a lot of money in this country over the past year. I see this rate environment shifting. Where am I going to take my money out from? Probably Argentina. And they're also weak. Okay. So why was all the money coming in? Because they had a very nice reform story. So now, now okay, so this is the politics because you can't ever have an Argentine crisis or even pseudo crisis without politics because Argentina is basically one big political crisis ongoing for decades. And the current president is the, you know, call him the neoliberal reformer, basically. He's the guy who paid off all the hedge funds and um, tried to become a market darling. And he's been okay at that. But if you are the president of Argentina, nothing ever goes smoothly. And and as we can see by 25% inflation, there's going to be bumps in the road. And this is clearly one of those bumps. Right. So, Macri, Mauricio Macri, took over after 12 years of Kirchner, Peronist, populist, very bad policies. So he inherited a mess. The economic statistics were so bad, they didn't even know how big of a mess it was. Okay. So because it was such a big mess, the population gave him a little bit of a honeymoon. So he could do a lot of the things that were necessary but painful, like increasing utility prices, letting the currency float, cutting back on pensions, the kind of things nobody likes, but they would let him do it because it was really necessary. Okay. Now what's happened? More time has passed. He's been moving in a very gradual manner, which has helped him in, in terms of politically in the country, but has made investors a little bit warier. Okay. So what happened in December was that Macri upset a lot of investors because they increased the inflation target for the year. And then at the same time, the central bank decreased rates, even though they were above their inflation target. So so they increased the inflation target to 15%. They, they were like, we, we are targeting 15% inflation, which sounds like a crazy high amount of inflation. But really, it's quite ag- aggressive if inflation is at 25%. Well, and inflation had been at 40%. Exactly. So- so the issue is that happened. So investors started to get a little spooked. So why are investors spooked when even 15% is clearly like a really tough reach in a in an environment of 40 you know, or even 25% inflation? Why are they going to get upset about the central bank being a little bit more realistic about interest rate, about, about inflation? Because it suggests that the government is more concerned about political popularity than they are about targeting inflation and macroeconomic policies. And that's concerning if you're an investor, especially in a country that has a very vulnerable exchange rate. And this is where I think you basically have to blame the investors. And a large part of the 2000-ish, 2001 crisis was also the fault of investors, that they poured a huge amount of money into a very sort of rickety country without really knowing what they were doing. And then they stopped and then all hell broke loose. And what Anna was just talking about with you know 2017 the market darling everyone buying Argentine stocks and making 77 percent um is kind of the same history 
repeating itself, that these massive capital flows into Argentina have never done Argentina any favors, ever. And, and we're seeing it all over again. And one of the problems is that Buenos Aires is a very sort of cosmopolitan, sophisticated city, and the investors fly down there, and they see all of these very well-dressed you know, businessmen, and they're like, oh, yes, I'll give you the money. But they don't realize just how thin of a veneer mm. that is. And now is it... Uh, is another repeat of history because they're going asking the IMF for money again. Oh, yes. Yeah, like yeah, we need to bring the IMF back. Last Why? time. So, well, uh, yeah. yeah. So to me, the reason that Macri is going to the IMF is because he wants to signal to the markets. I think it's much more about that than about him actually needing the money. Yeah, they could probably use the reserves. But when they were increasing their rates, and, and as you said, they increased their rates in total like 1,200 basis points. And yet the markets were still unstable. So he's going to the IMF to prove to investors that, no, actually, he cares about orthodox policies. He's going to be targeting inflation. He cares about the currency But isn't rate. this also politically suicidal? Like, there isn't a single Argentine citizen who has anything other than complete hatred of the IMF. That is off. That is very likely true. <laughs> yeah, but it's to a me, dangerous game balancing the investors with your actual the actual people you're supposed to be taking care of. I right, but you can't of... take care of those people if you don't have foreign money coming in. The reform agenda will simply collapse. Well, I mean, but this is my point, right? Is that if you are reliant on foreign investment and if these foreign inflows always end in tears, then maybe you're doing it wrong. But you have a fiscal deficit and a current account deficit, and you can't possibly sh- make those smaller if you don't have money coming in. It's impossible who's buying your debt, who's buying your assets. If you want to have a completely different economy, sure, go to it. But this is the economy they have. If they want to continue to grow at a reasonable pace, if they want to reduce inflation, if they want to create jobs, then they have to follow normal macroeconomic policies. Otherwise, you know, look at Venezuela. (laughs) Sounds like they're caught in a terrible cycle and there's basically no way out. And there's going to that chart that that guy showed you, (laughs) the line's going to start going up again. Yeah, I mean, I can guarantee you that if you if you want if there's one decision that any politician in in Argentina can make, to make the like number of protests per day chart go up <laughs> rather than down, it's calling the IMF. <laughs> right. Yeah, except if by doing that, you're able to actually calm the markets and then you're able to move forward with a fairly reasonable reform agenda to make the economy better for the population. You kind of saw that's that ideal. in the U.S. right around the crisis, like... Uh, It's not similar, but it's a little similar, right? Obama, they did the bailout. They got everything back and stable and running. But the population, I mean, no one forgave the banks. No one, even though things were stable again and things were getting better, um, Americans still sort of... That's because it's hard to... Deep resentments and didn't feel it, you know? Well, it's also because it's hard to campaign on a counterfactual. Right. <laughs> we could. It could have been worse. Yeah, we could have all had an, <laughs> an enormous depression, and the entire economy yeah, yeah. would have. Imploded. I mean, I'm reminded but, of, no. of. I think it was James Carville who said that when he died, he wanted to come back as the bond market because <laughs> you have like so much power over the over the government, which hasn't been the case actually in the United States for at least a decade now. But it clearly is still the case in Argentina and this market which everyone in Argentina hates and they're like why are we having to do anything just you know to assuage a bunch of hedge fund investors in New York and London 
um, they, it still seems to have the power to force the president of the country to do things which none of his constituents want him to do. So the issue here that I'll keep going back to is that all countries are fundamentally reliant on other countries, whether you, whether you have a current account surplus or current account deficit. Okay. If you're in developing economy, you're probably going to be somewhat reliant on foreign investment. Now, historically, we know that foreign investment tends to move out and in very quickly. So yes, it is certainly true that when you have lots of money flowing in, the government in power should understand that that is not going to last and they should put aside buffers. And they never do. And also the countries which have transitioned successfully from like developing to developed status like Korea managed to do it without a bunch of foreign investment. It's not some necessary thing. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. But look, Argentina has had problems for so long. And these aren't going to be solved overnight. But I actually think the Macri administration is, frankly, moving in the right direction. And I don't think what they're doing right now is the worst thing in the world. I think that they are trying to signal to the market in a way that actually isn't the most damaging, in a way that then they can continue to move forward. And I think the country can become a little bit more normal. The economy can become a little bit more normal. And the only way you're ever going to get out of this enormous cycle is if you normalize things. Well, as far as the markets are concerned, the um, the famous Argentine century bond, which we talked about in an earlier episode where they issued a 100-year bond last year, that doesn't look like it's doing too well these days. But the stock market is still quite hurt. Quite healthy. Well, it it just had a bump because they just passed a law that makes it easier for uh, small and medium businesses to access capital, which is important because they needed to do that in order so that they can be upgraded to an emerging market for MSCI. So they'd be put in the index. Yeah, for, for like back when I was covering Argentina, like Argentina was always the biggest emerging market, but then it just became such a basket case that Morgan Stanley downgraded it from emerging market to frontier. Oh, I've never heard of that. Frontier. Huh? Like, mm-hmm. you know, with like Zimbabwe and shit, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you don't have as much money coming into the equity market mm-hmm. as you would if you're EM. Yeah. But so the equity market, if you, if you, um, if you have a very, very strong stomach, the equity market is still doing okay in Argentina. No, honestly, when you have a moment like this where there's actually a little bit of crisis is the moment you'd actually want to come in and invest. Well, I mean, maybe if it had like dipped yeah it, ha- it well hasn't. yeah the equity market not as much but the bond market interesting so, that so maybe you maybe you want to your bond so, so, so this <laughs> at is, 83 cents maybe exactly so this is this is the, the inv- this week's investment advice from slate money it's by the argentine <laughs> century bond and give it to your mom on sunday and give it to your mom, like, that is that is I've a gift wanted a bond which mother's which day. mothers have, have always loved <laughs> You got me a century bond. It won't mature for another 99 years. That's so romantic. Seven and one eighths coupon on that thing. (laughs) Put your mother into the Argentine (laughs) century, all of her liquid assets, and she'll be able. It's it's an annuity. It's seven and an eighth. She'll live happily ever after. Okay, I think that's probably all the time we have for Argentina. But if your mother has any questions about like what she's meant to do with this Argentine century bond, do like forward the questions on to. Slate money at slate.com. Let's have a numbers round. Um, who has a number? Um, I have a number. You have a number? Me. Yes, Emily, what's your number? My number is zero. That is the, um, there are zero non-white board members on Amazon's board. And um, 
Recode had a very good piece, I think, yesterday or the day before that you can go read about there was a shareholder proposal to at least get the company to consider, um, you know, uh, people of color for their board of directors. And the company said, no, we have a process. And apparently even Amazon's employees were like, what is this process? They were like, this process is BS. Um, and um, even among tech companies, uh, there's usually one or two people of color on a board. And it's actually pretty unusual. I think Amazon ranks last um, when it comes to board diversity. Have they ever had a person of color on the board? I don't think so. What, does anyone care about Amazon's board? I feel like this is the most OTO's question. board in the world. Like Amazon is controlled by Jeff Bezos. There's absolutely no sense in which the board has any control over Jeff Bezos. So what's the point? Who cares? I mean, people care. There was a shareholder proposal. I mean, the optics are bad. Um, I don't know. Amazon is not known as a very progressive company. I mean, they have all kinds of issues with their employees specifically. And boards still do have power. Like, and, and also, and, their rep- said. and representation is important. Yes, yeah. it's important. Even their own employees want it. So it's now it's become, you know, an internal issue also, right? Anna, do you have a number? I do. My number is 1.41 million barrels per day. <laughs> so I am not talking about Iranian oil production. I am talking about Venezuelan oil production. The reason I'm saying this is because, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in Slate Plus, but because of um, U.S. Com- going out of the Iran nuclear deal, people have been talking about Iranian production and the effect that that's going to have on oil prices. And what people haven't talked about as much is what's been happening over the past year in Venezuela and how how many barrels have been actually taken off the market and how many more moving forward could be because of a few different issues Venezuela is involved in, besides just being Venezuela. <laughs> but they're having a harder time potentially getting the product that they need to refine their oil in order to be able to transport it. So because you could, they don't have any money to pay for it? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and also because there's a whole thing with ConocoPhillips too, I won't get into. <laughs> but point is that you could see another maybe 500, um, 500,000 barrels a day taken off the market just from Venezuela, which is essentially similar to what we're expecting in Iran. So it's an important thing to think about. My number is one, uh, which is the a little teaser for next week next week we're gonna have a whole segment on this but just so that you want to look forward to it 1.0 it's the number of unemployed workers per job vacancy it's the lowest it's ever been since we've had that time series um, which i think isn't that old it started in like 2001 but it's it basically if you took all of the unemployed workers in America and you match them into all of the job vacancies in America, there would be no unemployed people anymore. Problem solved. Problem solved. Um, On which note, we will wrap this main part of the podcast up. We will continue to talk in Slate Plus about OPEC and things like that. But for the time, for everyone else, uh, thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Dan Trader for producing. Keep the emails coming. Slatemoney at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week about unemployment and other things on Slate Money. Slate Money.